We're reading from 1 Samuel 9, and if you have Pew Bibles, it's on page 275. Sorry, 1 Samuel 5. <laughs> that helps, doesn't it? <laughs> so, great story. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the, the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with this ark, with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the Ark of the God of Israel round to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the Ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Thank you. What a great story. <laughs> Very excited to share this morning. <laughs> um, let me pray for us before I begin. God, we've sung about your holiness this morning, and God, we pray that you would awaken us again to the greatness and majesty and power. God, would we be challenged, would we be would we inspired and encouraged by your word and by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in a sermon series called Spiritual Heart Surgery, and we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel. We started out with the story of Hannah, who had a broken heart and who cried out to God. Then we saw the abuse of power in the house of Eli and his sons. 
And then we saw um, last week, as Sean shared with us, the story of Samuel, who had a heart um, receptive to the Lord, a willing heart, a heart ready to speak, um, to, to listen to the voice of God, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And this morning, we are looking at the heart of worship. And what I want to explore in this passage is how the God we worship is both all-powerful and all-loving. This is a God who, in Ephesians, it says it's far above all rule and power and authority and dominion. And yet, he is the God who approaches us, who comes towards us with compassion and grace. And so I want us to be challenged this morning that this is our God. This is the God that dwells with us. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been listening to some of the stories that have been retold or told for the first time about the Queen since her death. And the story I want to share with you this morning is um, by Richard Griffith. Griffith? No, Griffin. Um, He was one of the royal protection officers, and he had the privilege of being the Queen's bodyguard when she went to Balmoral, and apparently she would go up to Balmoral for a bit of rest and a bit of seclusion, Um, and she loved apparently to go out for walks on her own, but he would go with her. And um, he explained that they were out um, and, and on the grounds of Balmoral for a walk and a picnic. And normally what would happen is there would be no one around. But if there were people, the Queen was very gracious and apparently she'd always say hello. She'd always be very kind. And on this occasion, they could see two hikers coming towards them. But he said he kind of got the sense as they came towards them and it became very apparent very quickly that they had no idea who she was. And he said, well, that's fine. They're not from the UK. They're not from around here. Why should they know who she was? Um, But I think I've told a story a bit similar to this last year and apparently I think she liked this little game. Anyway, so they come towards her and they start to tell them, oh, we've been for a bit of a walk. This is where we've been. This is where we're going. We've explored this part of the UK. And then they turned to the Queen and he could see the question coming a mile off and they said, so where do you live? And she said, "Um, well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home um, just over the hill. And he goes, oh, how long have you been coming here? She goes, oh, since I was a little girl, so nearly over 80 years now. And he goes, oh, okay. And you see the cogs turning. He goes, so if you've been here for all that time, you must have come across the the queen in your travels. You must have met the queen. And um, apparently, as quick as a flash, she responded, no, I've never met her. But um, Richard here, he's met her lots of times. And then the tourist, the uh, hiker got really excited. He goes, oh, you've met the queen. (laughs) What's she like? And apparently, he knew the queen quite well. He had a bit of a friendship. And so he knew she wouldn't mind. And he said, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times, but she's got a lovely sense of humor. And the hiker got really excited. He put his arm around Richard and he gave his camera to the queen and said, can you take a photo of us, please? Um, And apparently the bodyguard did make sure that in the end they also had a photo of them with the queen. (laughs) And apparently they walked away. They said goodbye. They never let on. And the queen said, I really hope that when this guy goes home and shows this photo to his friends and family, someone tells him who I am. (laughs) Richard had 
this lovely relationship with the queen where they were both kind of friends, but he also had a great respect and an honor for the power that she had. And the reason these stories are so brilliant and so endearing is because the queen was the keeper of the constitutional flame. She had the power to appoint and dismiss ministers, to summon parliament. Her funeral was watched by millions of people, perhaps even billions, there's some debate about that. Um, and whether we agree with the monarchy or not, we cannot deny that she was an excellent example of humility, of power under control. And in a way, Richard's relationship with the Queen is a bit like a grain of sand in comparison to our relationship with God, the one who is all-powerful and yet closer than our breath, the one who says of himself in Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, where is the house that you will build for me? And yet he also says in Matthew 11, I am gentle and humble in heart. And in John 14, we will come to them and make our home with them. It's amazing. So let's turn to 1 Samuel. If you've got your Bibles, do have them open, because I'm going to be doing a bit of a, a whistle-stop stall through a few chapters, actually. So just to recap, last week's passage, Samuel has prophesied against the house of Eli, the priest, because of the sin of his sons and Eli's failure to restrain their sin in the temple of God. And then in chapter 4, there's a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. About 4,000 people, um, Israelite soldiers, were killed. So the, the elders say, how about we bring the Ark of the Covenant with us next time we go into battle and we will have victory? Now notice how they said, let's do our own plan and take God with us as a kind of afterthought. I wonder how many of us have been guilty of doing that with God in our own lives. I know I have. But what is worse is that the ones who walked with the Ark of the Covenant into battle were Hophni and Phinehas, the ones who had abused their power as priests of the Lord, who had desecrated the temple with sexual immorality, with theft and greed. And so, of course, Samuel's prophecy is now fulfilled. They are killed in battle, and the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. And then Eli, the priest, hears of this, and apparently he falls off his stool backwards and breaks his neck, and he dies. And then Phineas's wife names the boy um, of um, her Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Now, just a side note here. I find it interesting that in recent years, both in the secular and in the spiritual world, we have seen a great unmasking and unveiling of the abuse of power. And I think there is a greater awareness in our culture now of power and oppression, of intersectionality, of this kind of web of oppression that affects people either because of their class or their race or their gender. And I think this is something as Christians we need to be really aware of all the more. We need to constantly ask ourselves, what is the power that we have and do we hold it with pride or humility? James 4 and 1 Peter both say, God opposes the proud, but he shows grace to the humble. And I think Hophni and Phinehas are really stark examples of this. So now we arrive at chapter 5. 
The Ark of the Covenant has been taken by the Philistines as a war trophy. And what they do is they place the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of their god, Dagon. Now, some commentators used to think that Dagon was just a small Canaanite god that they'd kind of adopted into their worship. It wasn't that significant. But now, um, commentators are saying that evidence suggests that Dagon was actually the national god of the Philistines. So this was the big bad god of the Philistines. And so they take the Ark of God and they set it next to Dagon. Now remember, just a few chapters earlier, Hannah was singing, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. And yet here we see Yahweh diminished and defeated and placed beside the victorious god, Dagon. But it doesn't end there. (laughs) Early the next day, the people of Ashdod came to worship their god. Perhaps they came to offer sacrifices. Perhaps they'd come to marvel at the great god who caused them to be victorious in battle against Yahweh. And what do they find? Their god, flat on his face, on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And I love the Tyndale translation of this. It says, Dagon lay groveling upon the ground. That's brilliant. And then in the next sentence, it says, they took Dagon and put him back in his place. How humiliating is that? They had to prop up their own God. They had to put him back in his place. But it doesn't end there. Verse four. But the following morning, when they rose, There was Dagon, again, fallen on his face. I added the again, by the way. On the ground before the ark of the Lord, his head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. And this leads very beautifully and poetically into the next line. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod. And this phrase is repeated several times. I don't know if you noticed throughout this passage. The hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod. The hand in the Hebrew Bible is the symbol of power. The hands of the enemy have been severed. And the hand of Yahweh, the power of Yahweh, is now heavy upon the people of Ashdod. This is a great reversal of power The temple of Dagon, the place of defeat, becomes the arena for Yahweh to display his sovereignty and his power. Do you know that your places of defeat in your life are the arenas for God's sovereignty and power to be revealed? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. And what happens next in the narrative is that plagues come on the people of Ashdod, and these are reminiscent of the great plagues of Egypt. And the chapter ends with this phrase in verse 12, the outcry of the city went up to heaven. And so, of course, the priests of the Philistines then are like, we need to get rid of this ark. This is no good. This is really awful. We need to get rid of the ark of the covenant pronto. And so what they do is they load the ark 
onto a cart with offerings of gold and they send it on its way. But they want to know for sure that it was indeed the hand of Yahweh that was heavy upon them and it caused all these things to happen and that it wasn't just coincidence. So what they do is this. Chapter 5, verse 7. Now then, this is what the priests tell them to do, the Philistine priests, they say. Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but it happened to us by chance. Now, what should have happened, obviously, is that these cows pulling the cart, their maternal instinct should have kicked in and they should have gone straight back to their, their calves that were lowing. But what happened, verse 12, it says, the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. Now, the text, the narrative It's really clear that God was revealing to the Philistines that he was indeed the almighty, powerful God, that it was indeed his hand upon them that caused this death and destruction in their land and their bodies. But the thing that gets me, and this actually woke me up in the middle of the night last week, because my brain was clearly subconsciously thinking about this sermon all week, (laughs) and um, and what woke me up in the night was this realization. I thought the narrative was all about the display of God's power. And in some ways it is. But what woke me up last week is that God returned to the ones who betrayed him. This is the God we worship, the God of all power and yet all love and humility. The God of judgment and the God of mercy. This God was treated with contempt. He was exploited in his own temple, exposed to the most grotesque, sinful behavior. And then in the hands of the Philistines, he is humiliated, he is captured, he is seemingly defeated. And then in a display of unrivaled freedom and sovereignty and power, he overcomes the enemy. And after all of that, he still chooses to return to the ones who betrayed him. Is that a familiar story? Do you recognize that from somewhere else in the Bible? Let's fast forward 3,000 years. Jesus is betrayed by his friends, captured, stripped, humiliated, seemingly defeated, dead and buried in a tomb. And then as a sign of his great sovereignty and power, he defeats death itself And have you ever thought about the beauty of this? Jesus returns to the ones who betrayed him. And not only that, but he serves them. He gives them breakfast. He walks with them. He talks with them. And finally, he gives them the gift of his Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, he gives to them. He gives to us. Do we really comprehend this? Do we comprehend this daily? 
that this is the God we worship. It's, we're not just walking with the Queen of England, right? It's Almighty God who walks with us. And as I've been reflecting on this passage in the last few weeks, I've, I've been drawn again to my knees in repentance. How easy it is to become blind and numb and indifferent to this. Dane Ortland writes, A corrupt heart sits still, indifferent. Not so with Christ. His holiness finds evil revolting, more revolting than any of us could ever feel. But it is that very holiness that also draws his heart out to help and relieve and protect and comfort to those who belong to him. Sin evokes a holy longing, holy love, holy tenderness. Our fallenness, our brokenness, our sinfulness causes us to be indifferent and numb to it all. But his holiness causes him to love all the more. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And perhaps we need a a reminder of this daily. If we want to have um, hearts that are worshipping God and and know and, and really grasp this truth, maybe we need to pin this passage to our fridges. Brilliant passage, Philippians 2, I'm going to read it. Let the same mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we want to foster a heart of worship, we need to know that this is a powerful, almighty, awesome God. And yet he comes towards us with love and mercy. Amen.